this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 24, and we're recording on Thursday, October 17th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, how are you doing? I'm great, Jeff. You, you're, I'm, your, your attention has been uh, focused on something we got to tell the people about. It has. I'm really excited. I've been working on this for a long time. Like a couple uh, months, or like you've been thinking about it for a while. Yeah, we've been thinking, I've been thinking about it for, for a long time. I love subscription packages, like mm-hmm. uh, like Birchbox for cosmetics, the thing where you you know throw a couple bucks towards a company, and either once a month or once a quarter, they send you a box of new products. Um, and I had for a long time been thinking, what if we could do this with books? We yeah. should totally do this with books. Uh, uh, so there is an awesome company called Quarterly, and uh, this week, Book Riot launched our own Quarterly box. So once a quarter, we will be sending a box of books and other bookish stuff. Uh, if you read the site and you like our book fetish column, it'll be that that sort of thing. Uh, maybe it's a t-shirt, maybe it's a poster, maybe there are uh, tote bags and pencils and all sorts of interesting uh, stuff that, that we love and that we think you guys uh, will love too. Uh, the subscription period for the first box is open now through November 29th. It's $50 a quarter. Um, and then you get a box of awesomeness that is valued at more than $50 uh, each quarter with uh, all the books selected by Book Riot editors and contributors. We're sort of thinking about these as the Book Riot approved titles, like the books that make their way through a bunch of our contributors just by word of mouth, but that have managed to stay under the radar enough that when you open your quarterly box, um, it's likely something that maybe you've been thinking about getting or maybe you haven't even heard of before, um, but that will be a surprise and a delight for your reading life and hopefully not something that you've already picked up on your own. So and you and to- maybe you might have. I mean, you guys are and good you readers. So you might have. And, you know, if it's that good that you have it and we picked it, it makes a good gift for somebody else. You can give it, it away. It does. Yeah, I would say then you would give your old copy to yeah, somebody else. Yeah, that's right. Give because, your old copy. Um, well, you, well, let's we, just leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. Well, hang on. I want to tease a little more. No, I'm just – that's enough of a tease that there might no, be no. some – Okay, okay. You, Here's the it's one your more. show. Your show. <laughs> I'm just going to do the rest of this okay. episode all by myself. This is the Rebecca Shinsky <laughs> News Hour. Jeff out. <laughs> Drop that mic. Yeah. Uh, so we're also working with the publishers and authors of the books that we've picked to make sure that we can do something extra and cool with them that makes the book uh, special and beyond what you could get if you had already read it or if you picked it up in your local bookstore. So there will always be something sort of extra and exciting about how we present these books. Uh, so you can go to quarterly.co slash products and you'll see Book Riot right there. Right there. Uh, with, uh, yeah, we're, we're front and center. We're, we're right next to Coco. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the person, not the food Just product. the food. That would be weird if the uh, food uh, but so if, uh, if you're into subscriptions or if you like what we do at Book Riot, you like our taste in books and you want to see uh, what we pick out for you and the other cool reading life accessories, check out our quarterly, please. Uh, we're really excited to be able to send you awesome book mail. Yeah, this is this is a fun project. And so it'll be every three months. Yep. We'll do another one and we'll have a different sort of take uh, each time. So, yeah, we're excited about that. All right. Quarterly.co slash products. And you can find us there. Okay. Do our sponsor. 
Our yeah, our, uh, our show this week is sponsored by If I'd Known You Were Coming by Kate Milliken. Uh, it's a debut collection of 12 short stories. Uh, we're on a short story kick I here. I like this. Lately, I like this too. These are all kind of right up my alley. Uh, if I'd Known You Were Coming is uh, edgy and elegant. These are quiet stories. And the, the jacket copy is so good that I'm not going to try to even put it into my own words because the sentence here is great. Uh, it says they are about what can happen when the uninvited guest of our darkest desires comes to call oh no and you're not you didn't even have enough food for everyone <laughs> and they show up your darkest desires show up. i mean i think maybe food is lower yeah, on the right. ladder of concerns there yeah, if you're right. if you're dark i guess it depends on how dark your darkest desires <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, might be but these are stories uh, obviously about desire about the things that we uh that we want about betrayal and love uh regret and family and uh it it sounds like i just love short stories especially for the fall for curling up mm. in a blanket and plowing through a collection and in one or two sittings. And so uh, If I'd Known You Were Coming by Kate Milliken from the University of Iowa Press, it's available now. Uh, awesome to see writers debut with short story yeah, collections nice. also. Um, really love it. And that's a good hook because then speaking of uh, quiet, elegant short stories, mm. uh, we were talking last week about Alice Monroe winning the Nobel. And you and I... Uh, <laughs> so wrong. Uh, we we're just so wrong. We're just so... And I don't know how... We both did this, but we somehow said that Monroe was the first writer in English to win the Nobel since 1993 when Toni Morrison won. won and that was it, it just, I mean, it's like, it's like, I don't even know how stupid we were. But anyway, we need to correct that. Maybe we were thinking Americans or North Americans. That's the only thing I can, uh, that's even a week. I'm not even going to try. Maybe we not were just wrong. I maybe, think we yeah, were, let's, you know, we're wrong. Play we're your sorry, sad trombone. And we need we to wrong. apologize to the following people in reverse chronological order. Doris Lessing in 2007 won the Nobel Prize. Harold Pinter in 2005. J.M. Kotze in 2003. Uh, V.S. Naipaul in 2001, and Seamus Haney in 1995, all wrote in English uh, primarily, um, and then all won the Nobel Prize, and we are dumb, and we are sorry to the literature gods. And thank you to our loyal Book Riot reader and listener, Melissa W., yeah. for, for gently pointing this yeah, out we had to a us on other, Twitter. Yeah, a couple other people uh, pointed it out, too, after Melissa did, but thank you, Melissa, for, for reminding us and uh, um, cajoling us into being better people than we actually are. <laughs> this is, uh, it takes a village. It, it takes, takes a village. A village uh, we have one more thing to follow up to. We were talking about uh, the story about the person who's reading a book from every country over a year. Yes. And we were, we were reminded of a, not a similar project really, but kind of a tangentially related project where um, this woman was reading a book a day for a whole year and wrote a book about it. And her name was Nina Sankovich. Um, and the name of the book was Tolstoy in the Purple Chair, which we might have said on the show. I don't remember we said the title or not, but I remember thinking that maybe I didn't say it. But that's the name of the book, Tolstoy in the Purple Chair, about a year of magical reading, basically one book a day for a year. Nina Shankovich and her website is readallday.org. And that was gently pointed to us by um, Mizell on Twitter, M-I-Z-Z-E-L-L-E, if you want to go follow someone who's awesome and help us out. Is that, is that, I got that right? Uh, yeah, you did get that right. And now on to more awesome, exciting, happy follow-up. Yeah, more follow-up. Our, uh, our, uh, Oyster. Our, our mutual um, crush, Oyster, is now <laughs> available gonna, for iPad. I'm going to write X's and O's on my notepad yeah. and uh, <laughs> draw little hearts around the Oyster <laughs> logo. Uh, yeah, so Oyster, which is, uh, they're calling it like a Netflix for eBooks. It's an eBook subscription service. Right. Uh, has rolled out iPhone only uh, last month. 
Was it last month? Maybe late um, August? Yeah, uh, somewhere in there. It's been a, it's out been a little while. for several weeks yeah. now. Uh, and now they are available for iPad as well. We uh, mentioned a couple of weeks ago that they're seeking an Android developer. So they're certainly uh, opening up their market. And now uh, anyone with an iPhone or an iPad uh, who lives in the U.S., it's currently U.S. only, can register. You no mm-hmm. longer have to have an invitation. So if you've been uh, waiting around, wishing and hoping and thinking and praying yep. for Oyster to come your way, uh, now's your shot, oysterbooks.com. Um, uh, we love them. Yeah, and it's a you get a 30 day free trial now, and um, it's iPad and no waiting list. So yeah. the only restriction now is iOS, iPad, iPhone, mm-hmm. um, and and I think the reason, and I don't know if maybe this is where there's timeline, but I think we got a little horse race going on here. We do. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, Scribd had launched uh, a competitor ebook subscription service, yep. and uh, they announced some numbers earlier this week from their first two weeks stat uh, corner. of existence. Yeah, we got a good stat corner. Good stat corner. There's a lot of juicy stuff here today. Uh, so, it, in the last two weeks, between October 1st and October 15th, uh, the first two weeks of Scribd's ebook subscription service uh, being available, mm-hmm. uh, users have spent 9.6 years reading books. Right. And the Scribd Power Reader consumes, I guess, based on their usage in that first two weeks, they extrapolated what it'll be like for a month. The Power Reader consumes approximately 10 books every month. That's That's a good effort. Which makes your nine or ten dollar subscription, if you're looking at Scribd or Oyster, a pretty darn good choice. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, well, okay, should we run through these before we talk we, about methodology state, problems? Yeah, our home state is represented uh, Yeah, in someone in, in Wichita, Kansas, uh, holds the, the, the only two-week-old record in script for reading 45 hours in a single week. Also, we'd like to call this person who I'd like to be when I grow up. <laughs> 14, <Jeff's> books, reti- <laughs> 14 books in seven days. <laughs> Jeff's retirement. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. And uh, for every book read all the way through... Um, subscribers average another four and a half books browsed, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, anecdotally, um, I have found that to be true with my use of Oyster, that since I've already paid my 10 bucks a month Mm -hmm. for the service and there's no uh, extra risk to me of opening a book in there and and not liking it, um, I do, you know, click on things and read 10 pages and either like, oh, I'll come back to it later or, oh, this is better than I thought it would be and keep going. And that's a that's a nice thing about having the risk removed. Yep, definitely true. Um, The most popular device so far was the iPad. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, all Android devices, and then on your desktop, and then the iPhone. So that's interesting. Interesting. I, I wonder if maybe the iPhone people like us all ran to Oyster first. Mm. Um, and so there's maybe a little trailing uh, bias there. I am always surprised, and maybe this is just a block that mm-hmm. I have, but I'm always surprised when numbers come out about people reading books on their desktops and laptops. Yeah, me too. Totally agree. Uh, I find it. Uh, insufferable, but um, that's just me. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Subscribers that start a romance book are twice as likely to finish it as users that start a business book. That shouldn't be surprising. It no. doesn't seem surprising. Romance would be fun to read. Yeah. Most business books are obligatory. <laughs> the most popular genre on Scribd so far, general fiction. That's uh, so helpful. Yeah. yeah <laughs> general fiction. Uh, I, like, I like the body, mind, and spirit uh, Mm. (laughs) That's different than religion and romance and family and relationships, apparently. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's see. And it says most popular books by country. Um, Anything (laughs) interesting here? 
Well, the most popular book overall oh. was... Oh. The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, which oh, I learned is that's actually how you say that uh, recently. Uh, you, you do that so well. Paulo Coelho. The, I mean, uh, this uh, is... Uh, look, we're haters. What do you want to say? We're, <laughs> we're haters. We don't like, we don't like this. We don't like Paulo Coelho. <laughs> So, I think it, I want to see this map of the most popular books like a year or two out yeah. of use. Like in some ways, early data is interesting, and in other ways, early data is completely not helpful. Yeah. Or no, it is. It's useful. like it's just such a weird scatter. Like, like the, in <laughs> I South, hope they serve it, beer in hell. In is South the Africa, most popular in Germany. And in South Africa, it's a series of unfortunate events. Like, also, what does most popular mean here? Like, yeah. is this the the book that more people opened in right. each country than any or other book? Capita? Or is it the book that they finished? Yeah, that's interesting. Or... or Right. And is it per capita? How many users are in these countries? Like, did, does Scribd have three users in Germany and they're all reading? I hope they <laughs> right. serve beer in hell. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> um, and, I mean, Germany, you can do better than that. The, uh, the Japan gets the uh, Wonka Meter Prize because their one, their most read title is The Professor and the Mad Men. And that's that Which book is, about the Oxford English yeah, Dictionary. That's a great book. A very good book. And uh, then the, the Canadians, The Complete Joy of Homebrewing. <laughs> yeah, Canada represents. Shockingly. Yeah. I guess there are no books about ice fishing available yet. Um, right, but it looks like... Uh, so clearly, I mean, Scribd, Scribd is... They, they've overtly said, their CEO said, they think this can be a billion-dollar business for them. So they're they're putting this stuff out there. They're getting people interested. And you know what? No better way to get us talking about your service than to give us a nice, fat, juicy plate of stats. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, someone at Scribd headquarters was like, those people have book oh, riot. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> Stat corner. It's like that scene in High Fidelity. It's like I'm going to ten. I'm going to sell ten EPs by the Beta Band right now. He plays it. And people are like, "What is this? It's good." It's like that's where those where those idiots right now. More stats. We can't resist. Yeah, this one I think is really cool. This and is cool. Unexpected. So um, go for it. Iceland. It turns out. Iceland, which has a population of about 300,000 people, has more writers, more books published, and more books read per capita than anywhere else in the world. What else do you say but good job, Iceland? Yeah. Nice job, Iceland. And uh, I tweeted this stat yesterday and we got a bunch of like, oh, well, it's always cold and dark there. So what else is there to do besides read and write? Which maybe there is something to that. But one in 10 Icelanders will publish a book at some point in their life. That is just Um, crazy. Yeah, they but they also really nourish and nurture uh, literary culture. There are grants that writers can apply for that will pay them a salary um, for a year or for a couple of years while they work on their book. Uh, It won't be enough to make them rich, but it will be something. Yep. Um, They have a... uh, Now, I'm sorry to all Icelanders, and it's widely known that Icelandic is one of the hardest languages in the world to learn, Um, but they have a word for uh, the huge flood of books that come out around Christmas time, which is their, I mean, I guess it's a little deeper into the dark than we, we say the big fall book season here, but theirs mm. is Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, and the word, okay, I, I'm just going to embarrass myself. I mean, what, I've got no shame. Do it. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm know. trying to gear up my, uh, it's the Yola Yole Book of Load. Yola Book of Flow. Don't laugh too hard. Come on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, about, well, na- know- about now, every household gets a book catalog at the door, and they pour over it as they would a furniture or like the... the do, you, do you get the uh, 
the Sears wish book when you were a kid? Did you, did you do that? Like the, I remember the getting the JC Penny. Yeah, yeah, like same, same giant, sort of deal. Yeah, and you Christmas flip to catalog. the back, mm-hmm. and right after all the pajamas, there were all the good stuff right. uh, there at the back. But they do that with books. Um, and one of our book riot folk, Johan, mm-hmm. uh, is from Iceland. Uh, and he actually has a post that's going up on the site today, kind of a, a personal uh, perspective on this sense uh, of <laughs> We should have just had Johan pronounce this word for us. Yeah, and, but and you know, the comedic value goes down <laughs> considerably. Yola Bokaflod. So Iceland, Also man. the name of my new band. Yeah, Yola Bokaflod. Um, <laughs> man, we have to be butchering. I, I know. It's, we're probably saying something <laughs> profane. Um, so that's Iceland. Who knew? Awesome. I love this kind of stuff. I do, too. I'm really glad that it's Iceland, which like strikes me as, you know, th- it also seems like a country of outdoorsy people, you mm-hmm. know, like in, in my mind, people in Iceland are all like climbing ice flows yeah. and going on long hikes and watching the sunset. Um, it's cool that they're supporting the arts in this way. And I'm glad it's not like a self-righteously literary country. Yeah, like, no, it's like they just like it. It's not they just like it. They just right, like if it. it turned out that England, you know, was the was the <laughs> most, it would be like, well, that this is super boring, and also right. we're never going to stop hearing from England about how literary they are. Yeah. Um, so if you've never read any Icelandic literature, I mean, come on, uh, get with the program. But I've got a pick for you. Ooh. If can you believe it or not, uh, in 1955, Haldor Laxness uh, won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and he was an Icelander. Um, and became a huge he is the huge hero uh, of Icelandic's um, literature, so much so that his books are sold in like gas stations still. Um, and it's it'd be like you know, people name their cats Laxness. La- so Haldor <laughs> Laxness, he is not the winner of the 18th Hunger Games, though he may sound like it. Uh, he is um, the, the reigning Nobel laureate of Iceland. So you, you might check out and see if any and of that the- stuff interests you. Iceland actually has several Nobel Prize in literature yeah, winners. Yeah, they do. They do. I'm not do. going to try to recite all of them right yeah. now, but good job, Iceland. Good you job, Iceland. Our literary hero of if, the week. Yeah, if you've ever been there and you have you've seen this firsthand, uh, I'd like to know. I'd like to know. I want this chart of like who are the next five, right? Mm. Um, I saw a stat this week too that 60% of Americans say they'd like to write a book, which is a which explains maybe that 391,000 self-published title from last week a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, People just an, want to write books, man. They just want to do it. There's an ocean between wanting to write a book and actually writing yeah, it no, and self-publishing I, there it, is, too, but, though. But I wonder what percentage of – if 1 in 10 actually do it in Iceland, what percentage want to? Like 99.9%? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Someone should ask that we question. Should ask, we should ask that question in, in the inscrutable Iceland, Icelandic be... language. Um, okay. So we got more. Yola we got, Book of we, So we're going, we're going geography around the yeah, world. Yeah, this with isn't books. really, and this one does not appear is stat based. No. In fact, there's sort of no methodology. Which makes mentioned an awesome here. link bait and talk it, fodder. It, it does. Business Insider released a map uh, earlier this week of what they're claiming to be the most famous book set in every state. So not yeah. necessarily the most famous book from each state, but the most famous book set in every state. And so, you know, over the state of Washington, there is a picture of Twilight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the state of Texas, there is the cover of No Country for Old Men. Yep. Uh, this thing just begs to be quibbled over. Well, I think I was thinking about this too. And I, fame is a notoriously difficult thing to uh, measure, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, if you if you if this was called the best book set in every state, then we'd have some serious throwdownage because there are some. I mean, well, you mentioned Twilight, like Snow Falling on Cedars is a much better book, right? And it's set in in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what I mean. Well, so some of them are a, obvious, like Gone with the Wind in Georgia, To Kill a Mockingbird in Mississippi. Sure. Now they've got Interview with the Vampire for Louisiana. And I might argue that a confederacy of dunces more is more famous, famous. More famous? No movie of confederacy of dunces. D- d- dunces. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know how. You, if you asked a hundred Americans, have you heard of this book? Mm. Are you going to get more responses? Interview the vampire. I think you probably will. <sighs> I don't. We don't have to like it. It's not like it. Wizard of Oz for my great my home state has to be true though. It's said in I Kansas like. is a little what? weird. Yeah, I mean, it's and a frame you're story. Gonna, you're going to like Paradise, which is my favorite Toni yeah. Morrison. It's set in Oklahoma. Right. Uh, and it makes this list for most famous books set in Oklahoma. Well, also, probably one of the Toni Morrison books that fewer people are likely to recognize. Well, I was going to say um, because like, so then for Ohio, they have um, David Foster Wallace's, oh, I'm blanking on the, the Broom of the System, which cannot mm-hmm. be the most, the famous book set in Ohio. Because right. for, for starters, The Bluest Eye is in Ohio. Right. And that's a million times more famous um, than that. I have a quibble about New Jersey. Yeah. So Drown by Juno Diaz, which was... Uh, which Juno nerds Diaz's, like us know. Yeah, his debut collection of short stories mm-hmm. that's set in New Jersey. But Philip Roth and all those Newark novels. Yeah. How is Philip Roth, How is a Philip Roth book here? I don't, Not uh, more, like, if we really did our homework, I'm sure there's something else set in New Jersey that we could, we could come up with, too. Um, let's see. What else is interesting? The Secret Life of Bees is the one listed for South Carolina. And I'm go- I would argue uh, that anything by Pat Conroy... Mm. is more famous than The Secret Life of Bees. Yeah, some of it has a, a recency bias, like what's the most recent um, full thing. Um, so anyway, I was going to say um, Bastard Out of Cal- Carolina for South mm-hmm. Carolina is yeah. more... F- I mean, a lot of us have to read that. And uh, you, you never discount stuff people had to read in high school and junior right. high. No, I'm serious. Like, <laughs> No, no, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, Everybody Arkansas, knows of those a things. painted house, John Grisham. Our boy, boy D. Rough. Brizzle represents for DC with the Is lost that, symbol. I guess so. I guess it's got to be the most popular DC novel. Uh, most famous. Popular mm. is a different thing. I'm not really sure about that. Um, let's see. Anything else? I mean, okay, East of Eden for. California. Hotel, yeah, John Irving's Hotel New Hampshire. I mean, you got the, the name New Hampshire in the book. I mean, forget mention, about it. But, I'm, but other Irving novels are set in New Hampshire as well and are arguably more famous. Owen Meany, I guess. Cider House Rules. Cider House Rules, yeah, that's a good one. Um, the Shining for Colorado, pretty uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the, you also realize you got some slim pickings for I mean, Tom Brokaw's biography is for South Dakota. I mean, that is, or that's a sad story. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, um, Marilyn Robinson with housekeeping in yeah, Idaho, Idaho, which is uh, certainly a thing we're both happy yeah, to see. Yeah, boy, I mean, no one's heard of that book except us. Right. I mean, there's got to be, I mean, maybe there's not, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that seems rough. <laughs> uh, let's see. To have and have not for Florida. So that's tough, Florida, when you get like the fourth best Hemingway to cover mm. you. Nicholas Sparks for North Carolina. That's a tough, that's tough. Stuff. I guess though it's the Notebook. I mean, what's more famous yeah, than that? It's hard to beat the Notebook. Maybe we should more think of a the best book set in each state. Can we do that? Yeah. Well, I, we so listeners, we will of course have the link 
to this map and the list of books yeah. in the show notes. And if you want to peruse it and then suggest better famous books set in every state, we would love to hear about them at podcast. Yeah, at we definitely would. We definitely would. It's it's not an embarrassing attempt at this. It's just sort of weird, some of the choices. I think this is like what happens when non-book people make a thing about books. Yeah, if I could, maybe. If I could like snob for a minute. Well, like, but, 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 like so, if Publishers uh, Weekly did this, I think I would have, I would, I, get, I would guess that I'd have fewer quibbles that like people who work in books and are super steeped in them think about. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not so sure about that no? because like if you, the system of the broom, the broom of the system, excuse me, that's a pretty deep cut. Like. I don't know. I think I think this maybe what's hard if you have one person doing it, right? Yeah, Rather than like I mean, their own I wish there were just bias. something about methodology here. Like, yeah. uh, Edelweiss is a book search a system that a lot of us in the industry use, and you can search Edelweiss for books by setting. Mm -hmm. um, how so? How did they come up with these? It would be interesting. There's a, a cool online thing called Small Demons where you yep. can search for books with different settings. And so I wonder if they did a search for like books set in North Dakota and yeah. then looked and and of the ones that turned up on the list, picked the most famous ones, or if people were generating mm -hmm. their own ideas based on the books that they had read. That's like, a really I, good I, I just want to know how it was done. Tell me how it was done. Please. <laughs> yeah. Just tell us how you did it. And, and probably like a lot of things, it's, he just sat down, uh, this guy that wrote this uh, or made this thing, Mike Noodleman mm -hmm. and Melissa Stranger. Okay. Two people, St Stanger, Stanger, um, kind of just probably went through one by one yeah. and, um, and did it. So, uh, but it's a good conversation topic. Um, especially if you're traveling somewhere, it's kind of fun to read about mm -hmm. um, a place you are. So, okay, what do we got next? Oh, it's award season. It is award season. We're, we're hot into it a little bit. Um, let's start with the winner of the Man Booker Prize was announced this week. And her name, Eleanor Catton, won for a book called The Luminaries. And this is notable for many reasons. Um, not the least of which is she's the youngest ever to win this award. Um, she's 28. The Luminaries is also the longest book ever to win at 828 pages. 48. 848. Oh, let's see. You want to get those 20, extra 20 on there. I want, want those, those in there. Um, and it's a novel set in 19th century New Zealand, a big, sprawling, complicated family drama as far as I can understand. Do I have that right? Yeah, the reviews for it are all... Oh, great. Uh, I mean, everyone right, right. seems to love it. Big raves where yeah. uh, the story is essentially this is big and complicated and difficult, but so satisfying. Yeah, so th that's the winner. Um, what else should we say about that? It's just I mean, news. Yeah, it's pretty great. She's given some really interesting interviews. She has. She has uh, given there's some interesting a, I think it was in the, the Guardian ran a terrific piece that she wrote about her experience being this young woman who's written a huge book, mm -hmm. a huge, you know, not just in length, but in terms of the recognition that she's getting, that she's getting and um, how press and media respond to her and what interviews are like for her versus what she sees in uh, her male colleagues. Uh, and so she... She said, you know, that male writers are asked um, what they think about things and uh, women writers are asked how they feel mm. uh, and that the the only people who, that she has seen be vocally critical of her win here are 45 year old white guys. Yeah, well, it's the uh, same people that were pissed about Alice Monroe. Right. It's uh, it's David Gilmore in the bad job old dudes corner. <sighs> God. So, I mean, good job, Eleanor. Yeah, good Catton. job, Eleanor Good on Catton. you, uh, not just for writing what, by all accounts, is an outstanding book, but she's representing. Like, yeah. girl came to play. That's right. And um, so here's the million-dollar question. Are you going to read this thing? Maybe. Mm -hmm. 848 That's pages, That's what I'm man. saying. 
I'm I, curious, but like 19th century family saga, New 900 Zealand. pages. It's <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a different t- time of my life, maybe, or maybe a different time of my life in the future. It's certainly on my radar now. Like I'm looking, uh, also the Na- National Book Awards shortlist yes. uh, came out. So I'm looking at that list, and I haven't read any of these five finalists and thinking I could probably read all five of these finalists <laughs> in the time yeah. that it would take me to read The Luminaries. So let's do and that. So they so are go- The Lowland by Jhumpa Lahiri. Yep. Uh, 10th of December, which is short stories by George Saunders. Mm-hmm. The Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner, which mm-hmm. you read. I did. And- I read 10th of December, too. Oh, okay. Uh, Bleeding Edge by Thomas Pynchon, mm-hmm. and The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. Yep. Um, good list, I think. Yeah, Interesting good list. list. Interesting One list. lady on the list. One, uh, no, two. Lahiri oh, right. and Kushner, Rachel right, Kushner. Right, right. Okay. Um, I can live with that. Yeah, I want to read The Lowland, which is getting great reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bleeding Edge is Pynchon. It's interesting. It's a Silicon Valley, early 2000 bubbles. I don't know anything about The Good Lord Bird. Do you know anything about it? Uh, I don't. James yeah. McBride, um, really, you know, well loved. Penguin seems yeah. very, very proud of this book and what it's doing so far. You have any guesses here? <sighs> well, so tenth of December is short stories, and that's always a tough one. Um, it also came out in January, like hot out of two thir- uh, twenty thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lahiri already has one. Of the National Book Award. And the National Book Award winners tend to be like a little bit more obscure yeah. than like a Pulitzer winner. Um, I kind of don't think it's going to be Pynchon either. It's too weird and there's some troubling stuff about women in there. I don't think they're going to go that way. Um, hmm. You know, I don't have a strong feeling. I like the flamethrowers. Um, I thought 10th of December was more what I want. Like it's more of an interesting mess. The flamethrower is very skillful. It does a tough thing. Um, it's about 70s art world in New York and Italian labor disputes, weirdly, and motorcycles. Hmm. Um, so I really like that. I could see that winning. She was shortlisted for her um, debut novel, which the name escapes me, uh, a while ago. So I could see that sort of as as the one going on. I kind of feel like it's going to be the Lowland, though. Hmm. It's a big, like- n- big, juicy novel, brand name, well-liked author. I don't know. What do you think? I'm leaning 10th of December. Yeah, you are. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot for this book to come full circle and sort of deliver on all the predictions that were yeah, made about it. Like right. the New York Times ran a, a giant editorial. You're not going to read a better book this year. Right. In, yeah. I think it was even December. Like it wasn't even 2013 <laughs> right. yet. And they were, and they were, they were running a story. And I could, I'll, I'll double check. I might be wrong about when that story came out. But the New York Times declared really super early on that uh, the 10th of December was the best book of 2013. Uh, like it was one of the first big books to come mm-hmm. out this year. Um, interesting with Alice Monroe having just one. Maybe we'll see like a year of the short story yep. uh, thing actually coming to there fruition. There it is. That would be it. Right. That would be, If in the Man Booker had not been a giant novel, we could really do something with that. Um, right. So, yeah, those are, I think those are all interesting choices. I'm going to try to read at least um, The Pinch, and I don't know if I'll get to The Good Lord Bird or not. I'll have to read the description yeah, and see if it... Yeah, I, I think I'm going to start with 10th of December. I've never read George yeah. Saunders, and I've heard that's a great uh, entry point for him. It is. It's really also. good. More, the more, more approachable of some of the stuff he does. Some of the stuff he does is, is really weird. This is just pretty hmm. weird. Um, on the <laughs> I whole. like weird in a short yeah, story. Yeah, you that like weird. Um, yeah, but you definitely could read The Flamethrowers and 10th of December, and I think The Good Lord Bird... In the, in the page uh, space, you would read um, The Luminaries in. Uh, the Lowland, I think, is 
pretty long. And the Bleeding Edge, Pynchon tends to write pretty long novels anyway, mm-hmm. but I don't know the page count off the top of my head. So those are, those, those are the big ones. So um, the National Book Award is the last big uh, literary award of the, mm-hmm. of the year. So we'll, we'll follow that one. Okay. We'll keep that one coming. All right. Libraries. Yeah, so cool. This is a cool, pro- I think it's a cool program. Yeah. Uh, the Chicago Public Library and its 80 branch locations. Yo. Uh, 80. <sighs> Uh, received a $300,000 grant from the Illinois State Library to create uh, what's called patron-driven acquisition. Uh, This is a pilot program. The acronym of which is PDA, but we'll leave that alone. Mm -hmm. PDA with your library. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a bunch of photos of people with their hands outstretched, holding Mm -hmm. hands with their libraries. (laughs) Take a picture of yourself kissing your library and send it to us, please. Uh, So this PDA, patron-driven acquisition, uh, is a pilot program that's a set of software where um, patrons of the library make a request for a book that, that they want to read, that they want to check out from the library, that the library doesn't currently own, and it triggers an automatic order mm-hmm. uh, for that book to be purchased and then delivered to the library so that the patron can check it out. Yep. Um, I think this is really interesting. It's it is you know it is and has been librarians' jobs to determine which books to acquire for their collections based on you know what they think people want to read, based on what um, their patrons' requests are, and yep. also what librarians' very specialized understanding of how to create a, a well-rounded collection is. So uh, I'm seeing mixed responses to this online, but I think this what? is really interesting. You are? Uh, why, yeah. Why? What? What's the this? Like this, a, they should, uh, this the acronym. For this should be DUH. It seems to me like <laughs> why? Why would what's the, oh, tell me the well? So uh, I put the article about this on Book Riot's Facebook yeah. page yesterday, and several folks chimed in with the like, "Well, you know, librarians know better than patrons do what libraries oh, come on. should keep in stock." Well, that might be true and, in general, but you, give the people what they want if right, they want right. some of I think, it. And this is in this age where you know we might we might jump to another story here in a second about yep. the end of the library. But, but where libraries are struggling, um, it seems to me that this is a direct way to to ensure that you have the books that your patrons want to check out. Because the kind of patrons that are going to use this service when you offer it to power them users are your power users, right. right? They're the kind of patron that are keeping your library open, and libraries' uh, money that they get from the state is often tied to the number of books that are checked out by patrons each year. So. Right. If you're acquiring books that that you know people want to read, you're you're going a distance toward keeping them coming to you rather than uh, allowing them to go somewhere else to get the books that they want. I think it's super smart. Yeah, I, I think it's super smart too. And about time, and and I think probably most libraries should have something uh, like this. I mean, probably a lot of them they'll already have. Like I said the titles um, have been added to the catalog mm-hmm. uh, already, and like. Jane Austen yeah. and Mind Mapping for Dummeries and the Handbook of Bird Photography and the Everything Soap Making Book. Uh, game. Th- I mean, like, I mean my, these my, are things people want to use. Yeah, right? my library here in Richmond has a thing on their online catalog where you can request or suggest that the library purchase a copy. Mm-hmm. And then if they do that and it becomes available, um, you get a notice that now the library owns the book and you can yeah. check it out or you can put it on hold, that sort of thing. But this, um, that there's no friction there that as soon as the patron makes the request, it triggers an order so the book comes in. Uh, mm-hmm. That's That's pretty seamless and I'm inclined to think that the folks uh, who are upset about this or who think that patrons shouldn't get to determine what's right. in the catalog I think that's a snobbery 
in action. Yeah, people, or you think you your job's people, on the line. Right. If you give the people what they want, but what if the what if all the people want to read Dan Brown? You know. Right. So uh, here's the according to a paper given at the Association of College and Research Librarians, there are librarians who are concerned that quote. Patrons, because they make requests for items solely to meet immediate needs and do not have institutional collection priorities in mind, will purchase via this program popular non-academic items or will lard their library's collection with topically idiosyncratic and otherwise inappropriate materials. You know, Screw you, man. Like, that's also, what I say to that. This is... Three hundred thousand yeah, dollars spread right. between eighty libraries. We're not saying branches. take over all collection. So, I mean, look, we're not librarian experts and blah blah blah. All disclaimers aside, but if a certain percentage of the books you let the people decide what they want, well, that seems like what a library should maybe be doing a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. it I don't. It, I, don't, I, don't yeah. get, I don't get the backlash. Right. I really and don't. And so. So at $300,000 spread between 80 branches, that's $3,750 to spend on books per branch if they, if they split it up evenly. So that's like 150 hardback books. Yeah. Right. And so this says 113,000 new reading informational materials will be acquired at the end. Yeah. So, so distributed and the, and you, you interlibrary loan, it can, mm-hmm. you know, come from another branch. Right. So it doesn't 113,000 really... total new titles spread between the collections of 80 libraries. Yeah, doesn't like that. That's it's... not enough new books to skew their. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like in, I don't know. Duh. Okay. Duh. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> duh. The Chicago Library's new program, duh. We like you, Chicago yeah, Library. We, good get job. your PDA good job. on, good man. Job. Get your, yeah. good, good job, libraries. <laughs> All right, we got a sponsor. All right. Squarespace is back. Yay. Yay. We like Squarespace. We like Squarespace. Squarespace, it's the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Uh, this is the best way to have a blog, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. It's 8 bucks a month to get started, so it's not free like some other services, but you get the best blogging platform that always has new features, new designs. And the thing that other cheaper blogging platforms don't have is they have awesome support. 24-7 support, over 70 customer service folks um, ensconced in some secret location in Manhattan um, (laughs) can help you if you run into trouble. Uh, And if you use your website seriously, you might. And it's important to you, you might. And I think if you have something that's important enough for you to make a website that you're going to update frequently, eight bucks a month is a small price to pay. Oh, and you want it to look good. You Everybody has a good. website. So having an ugly website now it is does. just not okay. Just not okay. Uh, Squarespace has over 20 templates um, for you to choose from. They're all beautiful. They're all responsive. That means if you look at an iPad or iPhone, they automatically adjust to the device that your reader is reading it on. And they're also really customizable. A really great drag and drop interface where you can move things around on the screen and just see how it looks. You can mess with font, ty- uh, font types and sizes and colors and spacing and all that kind of stuff. Um, for a free trial, go to squarespace.com slash riot, and you will get a free trial, a two-week free trial, to start building your own website. And then the thing I like about this is you don't have to do one of those like credit card trial things, right? Mm, Where you have mm-hmm. to enter your credit card to get the free trial. No credit card here. Just give me your email address so they can verify that you know, you're not a bot or something. And you will get signed up and play nice. with it. It's a lot of fun. And you don't have to do one of these things where like you have to remember to opt out or they charge you. It just they'll they'll send you a reminder and say your trial's up. You want to keep going, and if you're serious about a web project and you give it a shot, my guess is you're going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, we always ask if you are running yeah. your own website on Squarespace to let us know so that we can check out your example. And a listener did uh, send us that. We have IamJanesHeart.com. Uh, it's a book blog, Dangerously Literary. This is much prettier oh, than most so much book prettier. blogs. And we've seen a lot of Whoa, book blogs. do we know book blogs. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to highlight two things. It's IamJanesHeart.com. Um, and Jane sent this to us. I'm not going to share her last name because mm-hmm. I'm not sure if she wants this to. And you can look at her website if you're interested. Two things I really liked about this. One, it's got a full image wrap uh, around where the posts go. Um, so it's a picture, I assume, of Jane reading and drinking coffee. And it looks great all around there. It looks gorgeous. There. Um, has really nice topography in the header. The other thing I like, I don't know if you saw this, Rebecca, when you scroll, mm-hmm. um, the um, the menu bar at the top is static. Ooh, I just noticed that. Yeah, so it says, home, favorite books, post by category, review policy, contact me. Normally when you scroll on a website, those things disappear, right? They go mm-hmm. up with the scroll. But this template that Jane is using um, – keeps those at the top. So anytime someone's reading along her blog, even if they scroll down a ways, they can always pop back up if they want to send an email or look for a category. Yeah, and she's, she's done some nice customizing. She has yep. her Twitter feed yep. uh, running through the sidebar. She has a Goodreads widget that shows what she's currently reading also mm-hmm. in the sidebar and some covers of 2013 releases that she's looking forward to. And, you know, lots of great information here that doesn't look cluttery. It's yep. really, it's really neat. I'm sure that some of that is that Jane has a good uh, eye yep. for these things as well, but it looks really nice. Well, that's the thing about Squarespace is if even if you don't have a good eye, you can fake it a little bit, (sighs) which, you know, that's nice. That's nice. That is nice. That's nice. So squarespace.com slash riot. Go get your free trial there. Again, if you do run a Squarespace site or you start running one because of this or even just a trial, um, send it along and we'll give you a shout out and we'll take a look at your site and say nice things about it. Yep, podcast at bookriot.com. Podcast at bookriot.com. That's our email. Okay, let's do some birthdays. All right. Speaking of Doris Lessing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. she uh, won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, she just won it, according to us. Uh, <laughs> uh, novelist, uh, she was born October 22nd, 1919 in Iran um, to British service folk couple. Um, and my stat about her, she dropped out of school at 14 because she thought it was lame. Um, and she became a nursemaid to, to earn some money. And she started reading um, while working as a nursemaid for one of her employers who had a library that they let her use. And she started reading mostly politics and sociology, and she went off to the races to have a literary career from those humble beginnings. That's a great story. Isn't that good? You know, we had a similar fact like that. H.G. Wells was working Mm -hmm. for someone who had a library. And this occurred to me that there's a lot of stories about writers who got started in the library. There's a famous story of Ray Bradbury, right, Mm -hmm. who just sort of camped out Mm -hmm. at the L.A. Public Library with his typewriter. Yeah. uh, Richard Wright has a similar kind of story of just going to Chicago library and reading and writing and um, doing stuff like that. I, I, I mean, we need to collect these we, as, we as, should, as we get know, to a bad job tech dude story. <laughs> I know it's, it's a thing that makes you sort of bummed out when a novelist that you love has a new book coming out and it turns out that the new book is yes, a memoir. Yes, that does kind of bum me out. I love that. My favorite moment in any memoir is the moment that the person writing the memoir talks about like what it was that first introduced them to books. Their or when biblio they, when epiphany. Yeah. Oh, yes. You like that? That's going to be my new secret Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) Bibliopiphany. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I love that moment. And and you can count on that in a lot of memoirs. And so I'm sitting here. I don't I've never read Doris Lessing. And so I was about to say, like, did she write a memoir? Please tell me that she wrote a memoir. I'm not sure if she has or not. Um, anyway, so that's Doris Lessing. Her most famous book is The Golden Notebook. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other other birthday, Ursula K. Le Guin. 
nice. was born on October 21st, 1929 in Berkeley, California. Two little mm-hmm. facts about her. Her father, uh, her maiden name is Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Taylor, you know, his probably his first name was Mr. Uh, was That's the first American to earn a PhD in anthropology oh, at well. Columbia. Ever? Yeah. It wasn't awarded as a, as a degree before then. Columbia has a famous um, uh, anthropology uh, PhD program of which Zora Neale Hurston for a while was a student. Anyway, um, and he went on to found the second uh, anthropology PhD program in America at UC Berkeley. And Le Guin um, submitted her first short story to a science fiction, fiction magazine at the age of 11. So that she got started early. Awesome. It was rejected, sadly. Uh, much to the chagrin now of that publication, I think, oh which is God. called Science Fiction Magazine. It's like the beautiful and uh, yep. creative name. But she got started early uh, there. So that's uh, happy birthday this week to Ursula K. Le Guin and Doris Lessing. Yes, and, and thank you, Ursula K. Le Guin, for, for writing and inspiring you know, Margaret Atwood to start that's writing. That's right, and yeah. So many other uh, contemporary science, science fiction, fiction writers, particularly women, yep. uh, have you know tipped their hats to Ursula K. Le Guin and her early influence on them. So that's really very cool. She's a writer I've got on my list to catch up with at some point. She's on yeah. there. I, I haven't read any. I've read some Doris Lessing. I've read The Golden Notebook, but Ursula K. Le Guin, I haven't done it. So... Happy birthday, Doris Lessing and Ursula K. Le Guin. You want to talk about TV news? That's TV. Let's go all the way down <laughs> the seriousness spectrum. Is TV news, man. Meg Ryan, it was announced uh, this week in The Hollywood Reporter, Meg Ryan is going to come out of the very private life that she's been living in New York to star in a television series uh, where she plays a single mom who decides to return to her New York publishing house where she was once a brilliant editor. Here we go. Start your engines. <laughs> I'm I'm like already super excited for what I'm sure will be the weekly recaps of this show written yes. by people who work in publishing. Oh, and it's going like, to be great. You know, daily life in publishing is 900% less exciting yeah. than the way that it looks in this Meg Ryan Probably like uh, meth dealers always did after Breaking Bad. Like, <laughs> you know what? This, is just, this, this crap is unrealistic. Right. Yeah. Uh, someone tweeted, uh, I saw this week, like, oh, I wonder how many minutes they'll devote to uh, the editor trying to determine the profit and loss predictions for <laughs> yeah. a novel that she's acquired. Uh, we're going to, it's going to be like a cliche smorgasbord <laughs> of, of publishing myths. It's going to be great. Um, Meg Ryan, All of the who, books will be bestsellers. whom I dearly love, at least d- an earlier incarnation. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, come on. When Harry met Sally forget mm-hmm. about it you've live blogged you've got mail oh, at baby. least once at least once and that's not even all the ones i keep on my secret tumblr um meg ryan eating burritos.tumblr.com <laughs> um it's you know it should be fun I, it probably won't get picked up i hope it gets picked up are you up. still laughing at meg ryan <laughs> like of all the random things to have Meg Ryan doing in a Tumblr, you think of eating burritos. Well, let me give you a clue. You don't have to have just one Tumblr. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so in Meg Ryan, though, I've got to say this might be not kind, but what has she done recently that's been any good? Like, do we have any reason to believe this is going to be any good? Well, she has recently traded her fame for a very private life in New York. Yeah, that's that's code for I can't get any work. Uh, that's like I want to go spend more time with my family. Yeah, I, what, I, the last thing I even remember Meg Ryan doing was the movie where she was like a boxer's manager. Oh, yeah. Something about the against the ropes. Yes, that's what it was called. Very Is good. Is that what it was good called? Memory. How do I it, know that? Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, and it was not good, was it? Yeah, not it was good. not good. Uh, 
But this could be charming. It like, could. Maybe it's have a little you've got veil, you've got mail, whimsical, romantic, I, and, New Yeah, York there has stuff. to be like a publishing house romance sort of thing. Like, yeah, make it uh, quirky, not too saccharine. And if, like, if it's, you know, New York, of course, is a great place to set this. I hope they actually film it in New York and Meg Ryan can, like, go to the Slaughterhouse 90210 party yes. housing works. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. Slaughterhouse um, 90210 being an awesome Tumblr by Maris Kreisman that mixes uh, still photography from television shows with awesome quotes from books that seem to fit the moments in those Maybe stills. we can get a cameo. Maybe they'll reference our podcast and like, you know, someone <laughs> got, we, we slammed somebody and they're all pissed off or something. We got to get the be, show to be bigger. Than they'll that. be sitting in an acquisition meeting and going into methodology corner. Yeah, there we to go. To analyze which books they should acquire for the fall So list. let's see, this say when this um, is coming out? I think I stopped at the headline and I just started, (laughs) I just started fantasizing about what this would be like. Um, well, it's going to be on Fox, yep. and Fox has a, a, a great and long-running tradition of canceling good shows and keeping bad mm. ones. So if it's bad, it might stand a chance. Let's see. Which kind of writers are famous Half-hour enough to, comedy. to make cameos? Who, who could show up on a publishing house half-hour comedy and be like a writer that enough people watching the well, show? Well, we could have, well, I mean, we could have Salman Rushdie. He's, he's not afraid of a camera. That's true. Uh, what about John Green? Could do John Green. How about that? Oh yes, the people do know John Green. Uh, let's see. We could have uh, D. Brizzle. <laughs> he show up. He could show up. I bet he would. He seems. Yeah. I think Dan Brown has a pretty good sense of humor about yeah. himself at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know who doesn't and would never do it? Jay Franz. <laughs> it would be great. There should be a running gag about how she's trying to get Jonathan Franz in for a meeting. Yeah, that would be funny. Uh, Rowling, people would recognize, for yeah, sure. Yeah, pe- people. Tony Morrison. The, Timo, for sure. Timo. That's a travesty. Is, that's, that's, that's really Let's bad. just roll it back. I'm turning in my lit card. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so you know where we're going to cover that. I'm going to watch at least the pilot. Yeah, this has Book Riot Live blog yeah, written, written all, all over it. All over it. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, okay. Oh, um, geez. How do we get into this story? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, for all of you listening at home, I'm blushing through the microphone right now. All right. So apparently there's this thing called erotica that exists. And apparently there's a thing called self-publishing that exists. And those two have gotten together to create the demon love child that is a whole bunch of strange and uh, unusual and sometimes maybe even illegal uh, mm-hmm. works. And what's happened is basically the big ebook retailers who have to this point really embraced self publishing and haven't gone, given a lot of attention to the content have now had to wake up and realize that some of the stuff that's being sold through their sites, and this is Amazon, Barnes and Noble, WH Smith, Kobo, Kobo. Um, that some of this stuff is not cool to be selling. Um, to other people, especially things about underage um, people and incest, incest, especially and rape, um, and so they've there's each one of them has gone on a rash of deleting stuff uh, to various degrees of of severity. Kobo and D- Kobo has has taken self publishing stuff off as it reviews the titles. Like we, mm-hmm. we just sort of back this truck up. Um, with plans of bringing self-published stuff back on after they after they take a look and make sure they're cool with what's on there. W.H. Smith has sort of just gotten rid of it for now, mm-hmm. and it's not at all clear what's going to happen there. Amazon, Barnes & Noble are taking more of a piecemeal approach, title by title, 
um, certain vendors they've taken off that have had um, they've had especially high rates of problems with. Um, and you know, this is like I, I, I tweeted about this the other day. This is the chickens coming home to roost of just mm-hmm. putting whatever out there. And these are the repercussions. This is what's going to happen. You're going to have to deal with this at some point. Uh, what do you think about this? I think it's exactly that. It's the chickens coming home to roost. The the big story when, you know, particularly when Amazon and, and Smashwords were the first big places to let anyone publish a book, the big story was, isn't it so great that anyone can publish a book? And of course, that's the message if you're the ebook retailer uh, that you want to have out there, that now this is open to anyone. But you've got to know going in that unfortunately, anytime you allow anybody to do what they want, a certain percentage of people are just not going to behave. Uh, this is reality. That's the way it's going to go. Uh, if you if you let everybody into the club, you're going to end up kicking someone out for not doing what they're supposed to do, uh, for breaking some of the rules. And, and for sure, uh, publishing erotica about rape and incest uh, is is breaking the rules, uh, not just in a legal sense, but but now you know Kindle and Nook and Kobo and W H Smith, uh, these guys are running businesses, and they're I think they're hitting the point where it hurts them more yeah. to allow anybody to publish whatever they want than it helps them, uh, and it used to help them a lot to keep those to keep the doors wide open. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a bookstore potentially removing books that had sexist messages for kids in them. And, and anytime a bookstore is in the news for taking something off of its shelves, people cry censorship. Uh, some of the books that are uh, being removed from these ebook stores have illegal things right. in them. Some of them don't. And it's a question of taste or morality. Um, or but it's, PR. I mean, that's P- the other, by, yeah. right. PR. It's also, um, it, it's not censorship to decide that a product uh, is not in your customer's best interest. Or mm. if, if a product is something that most of your customers find objectionable, like an erotica novel about incest, then it's in your best interest to take that off your shelves so you can continue to serve the most of your customers in the best possible way. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, that the talk about publishing has been like the, the gatekeepers are, you know, gone. But you know what? There's always going to be a gate. It just mm-hmm. depends on how low down <laughs> the gate really, you know, what are you, where are you going to start policing? And we've reached the point where self-publishing has enough titles that a a meaningful, you know, even a small percentage of bad behavior or stuff people don't want to carry on their store is going to have a lot of numbers. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of titles. And I don't know what they're going to do, honestly. I mean, they're going to have people read self-publishing submissions because it's going to be really hard going forward. I think we're at the point where they're go- these retailers are going to have to start having written policies about yeah. what they will and won't allow to be self-published. And then probably, you know, but someone's like, going to have to read them, right? Someone's well, like going to have to a, say something gets flagged. What are they like going to the, do? Like the Goodreads reviews that we've been talking, yeah. talking about being policed. Um, a lot of that depends on users to flag a review as objectionable. And then right. Goodreads goes and reviews it because, of course, Goodreads can't read all the bajillion sure. book yeah. reviews that are there. And I would guess that's probably what's going to happen at these retailers too is maybe they're doing keyword searches um, into the metadata and the descriptions of ebooks mm. and using that as a first method to catch stuff that might be yeah. objectionable. And maybe they 
can do real text searches. Like if yeah, it mentions they'll, they'll certain probably, words enough time, they go flag it to take a yeah, look at it. Yeah, they'll probably also be relying on customers and readers to flag and direct them to material that's objectionable. And and, and it'll be interesting to see what those policies say I when they if, start to come out. Um, I asked <laughs> about dinosaur erotica. Mm. Um, I asked on Twitter what uh, someone said, isn't that bestiality? And so I asked on Twitter, like, what, uh, what constitutes or doesn't constitute, right. I guess, in Amazon's policy, whether it's bestiality and their, their unofficial policy as quoted in a user forum on Amazon is whether the animal in the book has sentient thoughts or not. So if the dinosaur in the dinosaur erotica, like is sentient and, uh, or is like a shape shifter with right. human, then with you, human that's intellect, okay. that's cool. But right. if it's a, you know, if it's an animal that is not sentient, that the person is raping essentially right. that is not cool uh with amazon like what a what a strange and interesting oh, world we live in that man. we even have this policy well then i mean and then how often does it have to happen because like you know both you and i love beloved right right and there's a scene in there that would violate that term right but, but beloved cl- is but clearly not a work not of erotica, get, right? But I mean, but then you have to get into definition. Like, at what point is it literature, and what point is it erotic? I mean, God, that is not a job I want. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. Like, that is not easy. It's going to be hard, and I wonder if there will be some ebook resource or outlet where there's going to be like, if it's legal, you can publish it here. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of the thing that would happen. That's a classic mm-hmm. kind of digital response would be. If the big boys don't want to let us do what we think there's a market for and what we want to publish, then we're going to go somewhere else. Um, and we'll see about – I mean, clearly the illegal stuff, that's that's a matter of well, law. Well, yeah, and I mean, good luck selling this stuff somewhere that doesn't have the huge user base that Amazon Yeah. Has. Well, I mean, the way the things are, I mean, Amazon is not going to be the, the titan forever, forever that's and true. ever, amen. At some point, there's going to be something else. And I'm not saying this is it, but this is the kind of thing that shows the the, the weaknesses even mm-hmm. of some of these new ebook retailers. So anyway, that's that's a story that's going on too. All right. Speaking of bad jobs. Bad jobs. I don't even know what to say about this. Um, so MG Siegler, who is a writer for TechCrunch and a venture capitalist of Google Ventures, and someone I actually follow on Twitter and I think is yeah. a pretty smart guy, wrote uh, another one of these, the death of the library sorts of things. And what makes it notable, really, is how narrow-minded it is. It's all this solipsistic, I'm going to speak out of my own experience and extrapolate from that the future of everything, which technologists mm-hmm. love to do. Right. And TechCrunch publishes an end of publishing or end of the library yeah, piece end like, of so routinely that... Yeah. It's just that's sort of the drumbeat. I wonder if they have it on yeah. OmniFocus that we need another <laughs> one. We haven't had one for a while. Once a month, we must publish something about the death of books. Yeah. And his argument, I mean, there's a certain logic to it, and that is that, you know, if every, if ebooks are a thing and everything becomes digital, then you don't need these spaces called libraries, which on the surface of it makes some element of sense, um, but it also only makes sense if you are a venture capitalist in Silicon yeah. Valley. If you, live in a, <laughs> if you live in a little nice bubble where everyone can afford technology yeah, right. to read ebooks and everyone has an education that teaches them how to use the internet and how to take advantage of technology for research. Right. Uh, I think you tweeted something about check your privilege. Right. And like maybe we can have a check your privilege. That's a good one. I like that. Here on the Book Riot podcast. 20% of Americans don't have a home internet connection. Um, a higher percentage than that don't have and broadband. They, 
a higher it's percentage just... of that don't have e-readers, a higher percentage of that can't. You know, it's like there's so the technology only goes so far, yeah, and that you're is... running into demographics and sociology and economics. Right. I guess you can see in the long future, maybe where technology is just sort of dirt cheap. I guess, mm. but then you still have rights problems. We've talked about this with with ebooks before. Well, and, and libraries have undoubtedly and undeniably shifted their focus. Yeah, and they're in a large part now about not just helping patrons find books, but teaching patrons how to use technology and to be internet literate. Mm-hmm. Um, we have librarians who write for Book Riot who talk about teaching their patrons like how to set up an email address right. yeah. and how to fill out a job application. Um, when I worked retail, I re- remember people coming into the store and asking for applications and saying, we do all of them online and, and frequently encountering people who said, I don't have the internet or I don't have an email address. Um, And we would say, well, you should go to the library. This is a service that librarians um, are now Mm -hmm. sharpening their skills toward providing and that is still needed in many parts of the country that are not Silicon Valley. This, to me, this story is bad job, rich dude. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think sort of getting into a discussion of why libraries are good are, I mean, I think that's not the actual story here. Right, right. I think the story is in all of and you and I share this trait, our excitement about technology in the future, like there are some immutable facts that we still have to deal with. Um, and some of it is about par- poverty and some of it is about education and some of it is about access. Um, and those aren't just things that magically go away because the new Kindle gets 35 hours on a charge or, right. you know, or that, you know, eBooks can be checked out forever and ever. I meant, I think it's definitely a part of the story and I'd really expect libraries to change a lot in our lifetimes um, but the, a lot of the fundamental things that libraries do doesn't seem to me to be going anywhere anytime soon, even mm-hmm. if it's as a space where you can take your kids for story time or you can go sit at a table with your laptop and write and read papers and browse mm-hmm. the shelves, even if they're, you know, maybe at some point they're going to be 65 inch high resolution displays. And, you, you know, who I can't even imagine what things may or may not happen. But the idea of the library, it goes so far so far beyond just having a bunch of books on the shelves um, and what it means for other patrons. It, it's just, it's infuriating to see someone write this kind of <laughs> it's stuff, just, right? And it's so, like, I'm, I'm interested in the theory here in, yeah. in, in these conversations that we're having about what becomes of libraries as reading technology advances and as the internet advances. Like, that, that is an interesting question. Mm-hmm. But the way that this piece is written is so, it's just smug and self-satisfied. Yeah. And there's this point where he says, undoubtedly, some of the largest, most prestigious libraries will live on. But the people lurking in them may increasingly look like Gandalf in the bowels of Minas Tirith looking oh. through the scrolls of Isildur. I was like, what like, is I that? Mean, what is that? First of all, good job on a reference that like only 12 people who don't read TechCrunch will fully understand. I guess so. I mean, it's just... <laughs> It's I don't just, know. It's it's, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's, it's too bad because I think he's a smart guy, and it's just one of those situations where he's writing a blog post, and he had this sort of realization, like, I've never been to the library since I was in college. Well, great. Good for you. <laughs> um, but that doesn't tell anywhere close to the full part of the story. And one of the reasons I think you and I both like statistics so much about this sort of thing is that it allows you to get outside of your sort of bubble of experience, right? Like, right. if he had done any sort of basic Google searches about library visiting, like it's, it's flat and if not up 
mm-hmm. in recent years. And the move towards providing technology services and things like that are becoming more and more important. I go into my local library. It's where people get their tax forms. Right. Um, and all, you know, there's tutoring after school and all sorts of things that aren't about, well, yeah, I guess I can get the new pension novel as an ebook. so why do I need to go to the library? It's just it's not really about that. I mean, he wasn't going to the library before ebook, so there's a logical problem, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not the reason he's not going to the library. He's just not the kind of person that needs a library or that will use a library. So it's it's bad to say, well, now this thing, other thing has happened since I've stopped going to libraries. Therefore, everything mm-hmm. happens after is because of this thing that happened. At, and they just, it, there's no logic um, to connect those two things other than an associative kind that's particularly weak. Anyway, let's move on. I'm getting let's move on. Let's talk about something fun yeah, before, we do, before we do new books. I have one, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. one oh, extra awesome thing. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Lucha Libro, which was a, a program that a bar in Peru was conducting that was like competitive writing where the writers were wearing like masks, like the uh, the wrestlers in, in Mexican wrestling, and they were writing in a bar and people were voting on which piece was the best. And one of our listeners, Jason Stevenson, he tweets at teacherman82, uh, decided to to conduct a Lucha Libro session with his students. Uh, they nice. didn't wear wrestling masks, but they took the spirit of the thing where they, they posted words up on the wall and students had a, a limited amount of time to write a short story that included those words or themes. And uh, he did a, a Vine video of the highlights of it, and he sent it to us, and we'll drop that in the yep. show notes. Uh, this is just cool on multiple levels. So fun. Uh, so good job, Jason Stevenson. You can be our hero of the yeah, week also. Yeah, Jason Stevenson, hero of the week. That's awesome. And we'll drop a link. And if you want to take a look at what Vine is, what, six seconds yep. <laughs> of, uh, of uh, school age. But I'm, I'm sure if you, if you think it's awesome and you wanted to know more about how he did it, you could tweet yep. to him. And I'm I sure that he, he would talk you. to you about it. So you can set up Lucha Libro uh, in your class or your yep. hometown. And let's just make this a thing. Yep. Uh, okay, so new books. The, new they've books. got two headliners. And one Big, we talked about already. Yeah, so uh, we'll just mention briefly, since we talked yep. about The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, which won the, uh, the Man Booker Prize this week. It just came out uh, earlier this week, and uh, you can so you can buy it now if you are curious about the 848-page book by a 28-year-old uh, woman writer. It's set in uh, 1866, and Walter Moody has come to make his fortune upon the New Zealand gold fields. Uh, it's a story about the network of fate and fortune, and it's complex. And, There's uh, a mystery at the heart of it, apparently. Yeah. A, a series of unsolved. I'm, I'm okay. I'm a little more. Are you a little? A, li- a little more. If it by was 710 accounts, pages, maybe. By all accounts, it's a. Uh, uh, we, we've heard nothing but raves. That delicious. is definitely true. Nothing but raves. Yeah. Uh, other big, com- like mm-hmm. more popular book news is uh, that the next Bridget Jones novel by Helen Fielding, Bridget Jones, Mad About the Boy, came out on Tuesday, uh, and this is Bridget Jones stumbling through middle age. What, is she 55 uh, now? How old? What's middle age? I always forget. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't, and I don't remember how old Bridget was when we left her, but oh. this is, this is several years uh, after that. She's dealing with tweeting and texting and technology and, uh, and rediscovering parts of her personality. And uh, the, I won't read the full blurb here because the blurb gives away. There's a big thing that happens a big if you thing. care about the um, world of Bridget Jones. There's uh, a, there's but, a like, big thing. If you're interested in this book and you don't like spoilers, don't read the jacket copy <laughs> yeah. before you read yeah. the book because it will give it away. And uh, Helen Fielding uh, released an excerpt that gives away the big thing. People got really mad. I guess they're using then, the big thing to sell the book. Yeah, that must one, be the, their strategy. And the, right? 
Publisher then was like, we didn't think this was a spoiler. We thought this was like a big thing that readers would want to know about coming in. Uh, So in any way, big changes in Bridget Jones's life. And you can check out Bridget Jones Mad About the Boy, which is out this week. Uh, You want to hit your two? I got two two related ones real quick. Um, Novels that came out recently, not all this week. Two World War II novels that each with a twist. Um, The first is a book I heard about at BEA called The Paris Architect by Charles Belfour, who is an architect turned novelist. And, and the blurb there is he's an architect in, uh, in Paris in the years leading up to World War II. And a, um, he gets basically uh, approached by someone to build hideouts for Jews in, in buildings around Paris um, before the Nazis invade. And that's the story of him doing that and what happens to the... Mm. Anyway, that, that's enough of a hook, right? That's a pretty yeah, good Yeah, that's hook. interesting. I like that. Another World War II novel, The Two Hotel Frankfurts by David... I don't know how to say his last name. It's L-E-A-V-I-T-T. I'm going to say Levitt for yeah. now, who wrote a book I really liked called The Indian Clerk about uh, about math set in Cambridge, a novel, a true sort of historical... I don't know what you call this, a, a novelization of a true thing that happened. <laughs> um, historical fiction? Yeah, I guess, I guess it's historical fiction, sort of. Um, but uh, a, a self-taught um, Indian mathematician gets discovered and comes to Cambridge and does some of those of the most amazing math ever done. It's actually referenced in the movie Goodwill Hunting, so it's that kind of a big deal. Um, a beautiful novel. And this this one is set in uh, Lisbon in 1940, which is the last free port in, um, in Europe mm. uh, at this point. And, you know, com- there's, there's love and intrigue, kind of like a literary Casablanca feel to it. So I'm going to be reading both of those uh, at some point. And I think, um, I, I don't know if my dad, I don't know if my dad listens to this show, but dad, um, don't buy these before your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. That's all I'm going to say. Spoiler alert. I, that's all I'm going to say. All right, tell me about a paperback. Uh, in paperback this week is The Man in the Empty Suit by Sean Farrell, who is a friend of Book Riot. He was a rioter in residence uh, when this book first came out. And it is about a time traveler who's already toured uh, the entirety of human history. And so every year on his birthday, he celebrates um, by going to an abandoned New York City bar in the year 2071, which is the 100th anniversary of his birth. And he drinks his 12-year-old Scott with a bunch of other past and future versions of himself. Uh, so every year he returns to himself as as 100 and, and hangs out with past mm-hmm. and future selves. Uh, the year that he turns 39, however, and he, I guess, time travels forward to his 100th birthday, he finds the body of his 41-year-old self shot dead in this hotel. No. And so then, so then he has to figure out what happened and prevent it from happening so that all those other future selves can actually exist. My brain hurts a little, but I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, some of our um, folks read this and loved it. Yeah, Sean Farrell is sort of reliably like quirky and weird yeah. and friend fun. Of, friend of the site, Sean. Farrell. Yeah, uh, so that's in paperback this week. It's called The Man in the Empty Suit. If you like a little something different, I would say check this one out. Um, and that's our show. That is our show this week. Busy show. Lots of news. Lots of news. So, okay. Thanks to Squarespace Mm -hmm. for sponsoring the show, squarespace.com slash riot. You can get a free trial there. Thanks to... If uh, I'd Known You Were Coming. If I'd Known You Were Coming by Kate Kate Milliken. Milliken. Debut collection of short stories. Um, and also check out the quarterly box that we're going to do. Yeah, quarterly.co slash products. Slash products. If you want to tell us something about the show, have a story to tell, you have your own Squarespace site that you're working on, 
anything at all you want to tell us, uh, podcast at bookriot.com. We're getting lots of good stuff there these days, including telling us what kind of boneheads we are for forgetting about all these people who won Nobels. Um, you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. Um, all the things we've talked about, we'll link to there, including the books that we've talked about in various forms. If you want to try to remember it there, always welcome to leave us a review on iTunes. That's super helpful. What else we got for him? Is that it? You can find us online, of course, oh, of at, course. at bookriot.com, on Twitter at bookriot, on facebook.com slash bookriot. The people can find you on Twitter. At I'm reading at reading eight. I'm reading eight. Yep. And you and are? I am at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And that's our show. And that's it. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Talk to you later.